This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Hi, I'm Ron Paul, former congressman and presidential candidate. I'm here to tell you about a product that might just save your lives. It's a home freeze dryer from Harvest Right. With this great product, you can freeze dry the food your family loves, and it will last for 25 years. Our ancestors preserved and prepared for difficult times, shouldn't we? To learn more, go to HarvestRight.com or call 800-594-4635. That's 800-594-4635. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. In this serial, we're discussing slavery and America's founding fathers. Because some of the founders owned slaves, critics in today's society paint them as racists. They point to the three-fifths clause in the United States Constitution as proof of their racist beliefs. It's found in Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within the Union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed. Three-fifths of all other persons. The last sentence is the three-fifths compromise, and it refers to black slaves in the southern U.S. The founders decided that blacks would only be counted as three-fifths of a person. To use this as proof of the founders' hatred for people different than them shows a painful lack of knowledge. It is foolish to believe that the three-fifths in this clause had anything to do with the worth of the human being. The argument in question was over the census and counting people in various states for congressional representation and taxation. Many of the Southern delegates argued that their slaves should be counted as full people. It was their property, after all and thus every one of them should count as a whole person. Did this mean that the slave owners themselves were not racists? Of course not. Yet they wanted a one-to-one ratio. Why? Because that would increase their representation in Congress, and thus their power and ability to keep slavery intact. The northern delegates who sought the eventual end to slavery knew that with more representation for the South came more power, and if they allowed that, slavery may never end. To counter the Southern delegates, delegates from New England proposed that if property counted, then all of the horses and cattle and furniture in the North should count as well. After a lengthy argument, the three-fifths compromise was reached. During the Constitutional Convention of 1787, the slavery debate had threatened to derail any attempts to form a new government. In his extensive notes from the convention, James Madison recalled the crisis. The states were divided into different interests, not by their difference of size, but principally from their having or not having slaves. It did not lie between large and small states. It lay between the northern and southern. The argument over slavery boiled over when enraged representatives from Georgia and South Carolina threatened to walk out of the convention. So great was the threat of secession that James Madison and the framers made a Faustian bargain. 
In order to preserve the nation, the delegates included an article in the Constitution under which the slave trade could not be abolished until the year 1808. The southern states would not have entered into the Union of America without the temporary permission of that trade. And if they were excluded from the Union, the consequences might be dreadful to them and to us. Great as the evil is, a dismemberment of the Union would be worse. So the desire was there. The ability was not. However, as soon as allowed in the agreement with the South, the founders did, in fact, put an end to the slave trade as soon as they could. The year was 1808. Thus, from the ratification of the Constitutional Bill of Rights in 1791 to legislation ending it for good, the slave trade lasted a total of 17 years in the United States of America. Ending slavery altogether would take a civil war and the lives of 600,000 Americans 57 years later. Even before the Constitution was written, in fact, before America had even declared its independence, two founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush, got together to eliminate slavery from the American continent in the early 1770s. Franklin's journey towards abolitionism had started 10 years earlier with a visit in the 1760s to a school for black children created by the Reverend Thomas Bray. For Franklin, it was an eye-opener. After that experience, he reported having a higher opinion of the natural capacities of the black race than I ever before entertained. He went on to financially back the Bray Associate School in Philadelphia, as historian David Barton explains. While Pennsylvania was still a British colony, Pennsylvania passed an anti-slavery law. But King George III vetoed that law passed by Pennsylvania. At that point in time, in 1774, Ben Franklin joins with fellow Pennsylvania, also soon to be signer of the Declaration, Benjamin Rush, and they start the first abolition society in Pennsylvania. It was an act of civil disobedience against King George III. He said, you can't end slavery. They said, watch us. But Franklin had already taken actions well before that. Barton continues. Back in 1768, Ben Franklin had joined with Francis Hopkinson, who was also soon to be a signer of the Declaration, and they started a chain of schools across Pennsylvania and across New England for black Americans. And it was to teach black Americans the Bible and academics. Now, that doesn't seem all that notable today, but it was then because under British policy, you were not to be educating blacks. Because if you educate blacks, they don't make good slaves. And by the way, if you teach them to read, they're probably going to read the Bible because that was the book. And if they read the Bible, they're probably going to end up praying. If they end up praying, you know what they're going to pray for is an end of slavery. And that's just not a good thing to have an educated slave. So under British policy, you tried to avoid education for slaves. Now, that was carried forth in America and the southern states. And at the time of the Civil War, it was a capital offense to teach a black to read. If a white person taught a black person to read, you both got killed. That was a capital offense. Benjamin Franklin thought differently and wanted to see blacks educated. So here, back in the American Revolution time, this British policy, Franklin and Francis Hopkinson go together and start schools for black Americans. And what do they teach? They teach academics and the Bible, the very thing that British policy did not want taught. 
So Ben Franklin early demonstrated his proclivity in this direction. After 1774, when they started the first abolition society, in 1776, we separate from Great Britain, and then we go through the American Revolution, we in the American Revolution. After the revolution is over and we've established and, and Pennsylvania comes in and they start introducing anti-slavery laws again that can be passed now, Franklin reorganizes this original 1774 anti-slavery society. They reorganized it in 1784 and again in 1787, and Franklin was the president of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. Then he is there to help write the Constitution of the United States. He's one of the 39 who signed it. And then when the Congress convenes, the first Congress of the United States, 1789, lo and behold, Ben Franklin introduces a petition asking Congress to abolish slavery. Franklin died right there shortly after you introduced that petition. Congress met in 1789. He died in 1790. So he never got to see what he desired, but he was one of the many founding fathers who worked to end slavery in America, who recognized civil rights came on the basis of God's creation, that all men were created equal, and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life and liberty. As with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, Franklin owned slaves for about 40 years of his life. Seeing human beings through the lens of slavery in those conditions and in that environment, and only that environment, tainted and confused the impressions of these men. But as they grew in wisdom, matured, gained more information, and got to know the people involved, their attitudes and opinions of blacks and slavery changed 180 degrees. Franklin wrote, Slavery is such an atrocious debasement of human nature that its very extirpation, if not performed with solicitous care, may sometimes open a source of serious evils. The unhappy man, who has long been treated as a brute animal, too frequently sinks beneath the common standard of the human species. The galling chains that bind his body do also fetter his intellectual faculties and impair the social affections of his heart. Accustomed to move like a mere machine by the will of a master, reflection is suspended. He has not the power of choice, and reason and conscience have but little influence over his conduct, because he is chiefly governed by the passion of fear. He is poor and friendless, perhaps worn out by extreme labor, age, and disease. Under such circumstances, freedom may often prove a misfortune to himself and prejudicial to society. Franklin realized that being in bondage as a slave, having no free will, being governed by fear, and most likely abused on a regular basis, would take its toll on its victims. That is why he not only fought to free them, but also set up a way to help blacks once they were freed. He and his friends decided to expand the activity of their abolition society to include assistance in the immediate post-slavery period. And to accomplish the task, they wanted to provide relief of free Negroes unlawfully held in bondage. They circulated a letter to fundraise in order to assist free blacks and help them make the transition to freedom by providing them with advice, assistance in finding jobs, educating their children, and learning how to exercise and enjoy their new civil liberties. He did all of this with 
private funds and private effort and without any government interference or intervention. Next time, we meet the heroes of the abolitionist movement, including some who were former slaves themselves. Glenn Beck. This is the Glenn Beck program. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com.